You are listening to The Sound of Pursuit. I'm Hal Humphreys. And I'm John Nardizi. And I could drive a truck between the paws. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we did take some time off in the summer there. We so. took some time off in the summer, and I've had some struggles today getting myself together. But I'm absolutely tickled to be here, John. Um, today, we've got a guest with us. Um, tell us who we got. We have a great, talented investigator from the Phoenix, Arizona area. Steve Mason is here to talk with us about pre-charge investigations. Great topic. Let's get Steve in here right now. Steve, tell me just, just you know, for, for those that don't happen to know, you know, you're in Phoenix, you're a private investigator, former senior inspector for criminal investigator for the U.S. Marshal Service. Um, you've investigated cases involving corruption, fugitives, uh, war crime suspects, serial killers, and September 11 attacks. Um, your company is Mason, Mason Investigative Solutions. You focus on due diligence, civil and criminal, etc. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you find yourself in the world of the private investigator? I worked most of my career in law enforcement leading up to becoming a private investigator. So I worked uh, as a police officer for about 18 years started out at the state level, went to the feds with the U.S. Marshals, worked various assignments there, and then at some point decided I wanted to see what else was out there for me. So I started learning about private investigation and thought that would be kind of a cool thing to get into. It kind of tied into my investigative background, but also my love for business. So I started my own business in the end of 2016, officially started working full-time as a PI in 2017. Awesome. Um, so not only do you have PI experience, you're an experienced investigator kind of across the board. Um, everybody knows John. He's always here on the podcast with me. And you know me. Um, Steve, you had a LinkedIn post uh, from August talking about pre-trial criminal defense investigations. Um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this topic because a lot of times John... You know, we both do a lot of criminal work. Um, a lot of times we get a call two years after the event is a really, you know, normal time frame for me. Um, sometimes we get these post-conviction uh, cases. But I have in the past had the opportunity to do an investigation pre-trial, um, actually pre-indictment, uh, and get really good results from that. So, John, you, you've experienced this kind of thing too as well, right? I have, and Steve and I were talking a little bit about this, about the, you know, this type of client that is willing to not wait to be indicted or charged and to actually take the, the reins and, and go right after uh, the issue and start seeing witnesses first. It's a, it's a big advantage, and I think we'd like to hear more about it from uh, Steve in terms of what you're seeing in uh, Arizona. Yeah. So, Steve, tell us about that case. So this was a case involving... Uh, and I, I can't get into all the details because there's possible civil litigation, but it involved a motor vehicle case where uh, an individual driving a semi-truck had allegedly killed uh, another pedestrian who was driving their vehicle on the roadway. And initially the highway patrol came out with a bunch of immediate releases stating that they were investigating this individual and that they were seeking charges for negligent homicide related to the crash. Um, 
it was a the individual retained an attorney that we do regular work for so we initiated a pre-charge investigation and started putting together a criminal defense investigation pre-indictment and how often um does that happen how often do you get the chance to get in on a case pre-indictment I probably do one or two of these a month. I, I do them quite regularly. Um, a lot of the criminal defense clients that I work for, uh, their clients are pretty well off money-wise. So I think I've noticed kind of a trend, people who uh, either are in business or maybe they come from money or have money, they tend to try to get out in front of problems earlier than later. And so a lot of times those folks will hire criminal defense attorneys to start working on these cases pre-charge so that you know evidence can be collected before it's lost and maybe even negotiate charges with the prosecutor you know whether that's not filing or filing charges that more more appropriately reflect the conduct okay um john how many times do you get involved pre-indictment i've done a handful of them in the uh, in particular in healthcare fraud cases here which is obviously boston area has so many uh healthcare providers of various sorts. So it's mostly been in that area. And one of the issues that's come up, and I'd like to hear what Steve has experienced on this, is the government agency, whichever one it is that's investigating, is sort of shocked to see an investigator on the other side actually getting to evidence before they do, which includes video, which includes documents, even witnesses. And I've had quite a bit of pushback from uh, those particular agencies, they go into court and they argue that I'm not entitled to go speak with different witnesses or not entitled to get the videotape. And I, I've had a couple of great attorneys who said that's nonsense. No, there's no witnesses don't come with a stamp of approval from one side or the other. It's a witness with information. Uh, Steve, have you seen have you seen any pushback from some of the agencies on these cases? Yeah, we see pushback from records, witnesses, what have you. Uh, we've had that same experience with witnesses. I had one federal case some time ago where the prosecutor made a complaint to the court and the judge's response was, well, that's a witness. That's not a prosecution witness. <laughs> and it was yeah. kind of fun. Um, but yeah, like you said, though, I mean, just even getting to the video, because a lot of times the video is not being collected in a timely manner. And if you come in six months down the road, you've lost video. We commonly get denied records stating like, well, it's, a, it's an active criminal investigation, so we can't release records, um, which yeah. in our state is a specific Supreme Court rule that deals with that, that there is no ongoing investigation exemption to the public records law, at least here. Um, so yeah, you do get pushback. People are definitely surprised when you're obtaining evidence before they do, and they start yeah. throwing out accusations of you know witness tampering, whatever. And uh, it does take, you know, a solid defense attorney to push back on that and not get scared. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, the one case I was thrilled to work on pre-indictment, um, <clears throat> we knew the district attorney had some video evidence. Um, I had, so the alleged crime happened on a Monday morning, really early. Um, I was in the town where the investigation was going to happen Wednesday afternoon and sat with the attorney Wednesday afternoon. First thing I did on Thursday morning is went business by business down the street asking for video. And several of them gave me copies of their videos. And three of those showed a really clear 
uh, depiction of what happened. Um, we did not talk to the district attorney, didn't talk to the police, didn't talk to anybody. Um, so at this hearing, a bond hearing, um, the attorney asked for a copy of the videos that he knew the DA had. And the DA said, well, we're not, we're not obligated to turn that over until there's an indictment. <clears throat> and they were shocked when we kind of played a little dog and pony show, but I sat in the hallway and, and the attorney called me and I walked in and the DA saw me walking in and you could see their face just, they were like, <laughs> because they knew I had the video. Yeah. Um, and in this case, the judge, the, the, the attorney, so the, the bond was, the state was requesting a $500,000 bond. Um, the attorney was asking for a reduction to $50,000 bond. The judge took the video that we had provided him. Um, the state said, we're not going to provide it until there's an indictment. The judge went home and the next day he called the attorney and said, uh, they, they had another hearing and the judge, uh, ruled on it and not only took it down to 50,000, but took it down to 30,000 just to make a point to the DA, don't play hide the ball. Um, and the funny thing yeah. about that case is the DA took it to a grand jury and they no build it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's that reaction from the other side that they're somehow entitled to go first before the defense. I think it's typical. So one of the things that we've seen too is in our in the witness interview reports, I document questions because sometimes the witnesses will say, "Why why isn't the government in? Why haven't they come to me first? And I put that in there, <laughs> and uh, just to you know document what the conversations I'm having about their case. I'm not I'm not giving them any information about what the government's going to do or not do, other than we know that they're investigating. Uh, and they were very upset by that. They felt like they went into court and, and tried to argue that the defense investigator, me, I'm supposed to correct the record that the, the state investigators were not slow, that they were responding promptly. And, and the attorney I was working with says, that's really not our business to, to check in with the schedule of your investigators. You guys got 50 people on that staff. We don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So um, have you seen stuff like that, Steve, in Arizona, where they're actually sort of trying to put things on to you that, you, that really none of your, it's not required for you to do that. Yeah. And, and to be honest, the state most of the time is not going to tell you what they're doing. Even if you were to call and ask, you know, they <laughs> exactly yeah. um, don't get back to you. Um, yeah. It's like you said, you just document what you do, what you say, you know, it's, I, on these types of cases, I always like to get with the council first and kind of run through what the game plan is going to be make sure that the tasks, you know, are very clear and detailed oriented, that it's going to be both legal and useful for the case and, you know, kind of go from there. I think with these pre-charge things, it really is kind of a team effort of getting everybody together and hammering out a plan exactly what needs to be one, what needs to be done, when it needs to be done and how it needs to be done. Yeah. Did yeah, you work with other, other experts? On some of these, did you have other either investigators or forensics people? Yeah. So on this one, we worked uh, hand in hand with a, an accident reconstructionist who also has uh, forensic people on their staff that does general forensic work as well. 
So we, you know, we immediately started securing, you know, evidence that we could find and document conditions. Uh, a big thing for this case was going out to the scene because it involved a construction zone that was being decommissioned and taken down. And so there are certain rules that apply in construction zones with how vehicles have to operate, certain signage, the presence of police officers to warn the motorists of the construction. You know, all these were factors in our case that played into the defense. You know, so kind of having that expert opinion as to road design and all that stuff really kind of helped navigate what needed to be documented and why. Let me ask you this, Steve, you know, you got a really good outcome on this one case. Tell me, tell me just if you can, what, what was the outcome? They were, they were looking for reckless homicide. What was the outcome? So it sounds like at this point, the only charge that might be remaining is DUI which, you know, to go from negligent homicide to a DUI charge is pretty phenomenal. Definitely. So, yeah. you know, in, in the notes that Kim Green put together for us, there's a list of things that, that made this investigation successful. Um, you know, talk to us about the things that you feel like made this successful. I think, well, the biggest thing was, I, you know, the client recognized the fact that they needed to hire an attorney and, and they picked the right attorney. And I say that because I have several times in the past where I've referred, you know, calls that I get to my office from folks looking to, to do work. I refer them always to an attorney first before they hire an investigator, especially for criminal defense cases. And I've had several clients in the past, you know, email me like, hey, why'd you refer this guy to our office? He's not charged yet. So I think there's a little bit of recognition from the attorneys recognizing, you know, what the opportunities are and how to go about maximizing those opportunities. But so this attorney, you know, he was very quick within, you know, that same day that he got hired by the client, he immediately reached out to me, to the expert and uh, to another individual who was going to be on standby in case we had additional evidence come in. And we met, you know, like the next day, I mean, we literally pulled out a whiteboard and just started outlining things asking like, hey, you know, what, what, what can you guys do in these areas? This is what would be important for me. What's the capabilities? And then we created a spreadsheet that just listed out all the tasks, who was going to do what, when it was due. And then, you know, we got back together and discussed exactly what we had and what we thought we could do with it. Yeah, one, yeah. Of, one of the great things to me about some of these clients and, and law firms that are willing to do this type of work is, it's kind of the person, they're, they're business people who oftentimes made their mark by being first into the market. And they understand that you, you don't have to wait until the other side's ready. You know, they're preparing. So you, you need to prepare before they do, if you can. That's what I, I love that, that approach and that mindset. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, the thing is like, I, I teach, um, I teach a class on criminal defense and and one of the things I, I harp on is sooner better yep the closer you are to the event the more proximate you are to the event the sooner you can get to a thing the better memories are better recollections are better evidence is cleaner and better um you know just the sooner you can get there the better and if if a if a lawyer recognizes oh i've got a client they're probably going to be charged and they immediately start as as you said to kim assembling a team immediately you know you were talking about the lawyer reached out to you reached out to experts reached out to other people that would be involved and then 
clearly define what it is you think will be useful and everybody goes and does their thing. Did the, you know, sometimes John and I've talked about this a couple of times, you know, some attorneys like to write out questions for you to ask witnesses. Others say, go do your job. Um, You know, in these pre indictment investigations, um, I know you're going to sit there with the attorney and kind of map out a plan, but do these, do these guys usually micromanage you? They let you go do your thing. Pretty much they let me go do my thing. Every now and then they may say, hey, look, you know, if you have an opportunity, these are some things I would like to personally know, but they don't tell me like, hey, here's the script. You know, even with background work, you know, it's not like, oh, we're, we specifically want this. It's just research the individual, you know, kind of what areas to go into, what rabbit holes to go down, what rabbit holes not to go down. And I don't, I don't like the words free reign, right? Because everything's got to be, have parameters, but it's pretty much, you know, this, this attorney's favorite saying is, I don't know how to make the sausage. I just know I want sausage, you know, and that, <laughs> that's why I hire you because you make sausage, you know, and it's, he, he knows that like, you know, if you hire good experts, good investigators, you give them kind of the war plan of what you need done, the overarching plan, and they'll know how to get there, you know, and, yeah. they, and he knows too, like if we have questions or we're uncertain, you know, we'll, we'll reach out. We're not going to just, you know, forge yeah. ahead into the unknown. I like that style. And I'm curious too, did, did you end up writing uh, reports or were most of the, was most of the reporting done orally at that stage? Yeah, it was pretty much orally or rough notes. We got, yeah. we, briefed, we got back together and briefed, you know, several times. And then ultimately what happened was the, you know, attorney was going to write up a Trebus letter to send over to the prosecutor's office in the event that they sought an indictment. And just for, for those numbskulls in the crowd like myself that don't immediately know what a Trebus letter is, what is that? So there's a case going back to the late 90s in Arizona called Trebus versus State. And it it does it basically deals with the issue of grand juries and whether or not a defendant has due process rights to submit exculpatory evidence or even testify if he or she wishes at the grand jury. Um, so in this case, Arizona looked at, it was a case where an individual had been investigated for a, a sex crime and the attorney thought they had, the defense attorney thought they had exculpatory information that they wanted to share with a potential grand jury. And so they wrote a letter on behalf of Mr. Trebus to the prosecutor that they wanted presented to the grand jury. <clears throat> and ultimately the prosecutor you know, declined to present the information to the grand jury. So. Basically what in this case, you know, they dealt with this issue and, you know, they determined that, you know, a presentation to the grand jury is supposed to be, you know, fair and impartial in order to preserve due process rights. And by the very nature of grand juries, they're secret. So most defendants don't know that there's a grand jury convened, you know, investigating them. So the only person with that direct link is the prosecutor. And so basically the court said they hey you know the defense should be allowed to submit exculpatory information by way of a letter to the prosecutor and upon doing so they need to inform the grand jury that the defense has wished to present evidence and or testify at the proceedings and that failure to do so would be a violation of due process you know and it's a great read because it talks about how the prosecutor you know, there's that old, you know, saying a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich, right? Because they kind of control the proceedings, what goes right. in, what what's being told. And 
Arizona kind of rejected that and says, well, well, no, the prosecutor, you know, he or she may be a lawyer for the state, but they're also an officer of the court. And while it's not necessarily their job to present exculpatory information, there's no other conduit because grand juries are secret. So on behalf of the defense, they're supposed to make documents and, you know, information known to the grand jury. Okay. Okay. Um, That's interesting. I, we, have, we don't really have a, comp, a comparable system here, <laughs> but that, I, that's interesting. I think, you know, we, we've put together what we call grand jury packets before some of the attorneys I work with, and they will deliver to the DA, um, but there's absolutely no guarantee they're going to present it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and in like in Arizona, the grand jury doesn't have to, you know, you could say, hey, I'm a defendant. I would wish to testify. And they can say, well, we don't want to hear from you. And that's the grand jury's prerogative. Right. But they have to make it known to the grand jury that you wish to testify or present evidence. But, you know, even even in states where, you know, some of the listeners are probably in states where maybe this doesn't apply. Still, just having that conversation with the prosecutor prior to the indictment and letting them know what the exculpatory evidence is may result in charges not being filed or maybe lower charges that are more appropriate for the conduct. You know, because the investigators are they're looking to establish probable cause. They're going to collect information that fits their narrative, their case, and then they're going to go with that. So, yeah. you know, in some cases, it's really yeah. Um, so in your, in your LinkedIn article, you wrote that there's a, there's a quote from that article. It says, if your whole defense is confined to the four corners of the discovery documents provided to you by the government, you're at a serious disadvantage. Now, I think John and I both know exactly what you're talking about, but tell me, tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. So, you know, in every criminal case, eventually you get discovery materials from the prosecution and there are materials that have been put together by the investigators. And it's pretty much the evidence that they want to put forward the witnesses that they've found that they think fit their narrative. Maybe it's written in a way that argues their points. And there's a lot of attorneys out there that, you know, they'll take the discovery and their whole defense is based off of what is given to them by the prosecution. They don't hire experts. They don't hire investigators, you know, and the government already believes they have probable cause or, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt when they indict you. So if you're basing your whole investigation off of their investigation, there's really nothing overly helpful other than analyzing what they've provided you. You know, you really have to go out and find your own facts sometimes, or at least double check the government's facts. Absolutely. John, the ultimate point on, sorry, Hal. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say the, the ultimate point on, you know, that this four corners of the document, I I spoke one time with a career district court attorney, I'll call him. Uh, He's, he, I overheard him talking to somebody and he said, uh, I don't, I don't need an investigator because I have all the statements from the police reports. And that was <laughs> it's just accepting everything that's in that document as there's nothing more. There's nobody missed. And I'm not going to challenge anybody on anything. It was incredible. And yeah, uh, and yeah. the num- the number of times. All right, so every time I read an indictment, I think to myself, oh, my gosh, this person is horrible. They've done a really bad thing. Right. But that's just one side of the story. Um, and then you start digging into it, you realize, oh, that's that's been painted in a certain light, and it's not exactly indicative of what they think it is. 
um, and you start to kind of unravel the thing, and then you think, oh, this is actually a decent human being, and they didn't do what they're charged with. But you've got to dig more than just the indictment. I think that the really fun thing about this is, you know, if you consider the four corners of the discovery documents, um, in a case like this where you're getting out in front of it, you can get more information if you go at it sooner than you can later. If people have already talked to the police, maybe their memory's been modified. Maybe they've got, you know, they've heard the police side of the story and they've already developed an opinion or a take on the thing. But if you as an investigator can get out and talk to people ahead of time, and, and I can't stress enough, Steve and John, both of you chime in on this, but if you're doing pre-indictment investigations, keep really good track of what you do because someone along the way is going to say, oh, you've been tampering with witnesses. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was the accusation that was made against me because I was out there before any of the government agency witnesses. And uh, again, we just documented everything that was being told, you know, very thorough. We, we actually did generate written reports for every witness because this was an ongoing theme, Steve, un- unlike your case. But, you know, I, we did appreciate the fact that we were possibly creating a paper trail that could hurt us if certain witnesses would hurt us. But we, you know, our client was a very honest guy. We felt like he made some honest mistakes. There was no nefarious purposes. And we said, look, look let's just let's live with these mistakes. And I think ultimately he got a pretty good outcome on that case because we, we were able to get to people first. It's the one chance that you that you have as a defensive as you get to people first. It never happens, as you guys have already talked about, which is it's a big advantage to go first. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes the government just doesn't ask questions that are helpful. I mean, to be honest, sometimes the interviews just really suck, you know, yeah. Well, like with pre-charge yeah. cases, you know, what we like to do is have a very detailed client debrief first, you know, with the potential defendant to learn everything we can about what he or she has to say about the case. So we can also tailor our questions because sometimes they just, you know, even if you have good detectives, they just don't, if they don't know certain things to ask, they don't ask. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot in self-defense cases, right? Because they, they don't know what the, you know, especially if you have a defendant who hasn't made any statements, they don't know what the defendant felt, saw, observed, how they feel, what their training is, you know, any of these things that can come into play for self-defense. But you as the defense investigator, if you know this, you can ask those questions of the witnesses because you, you know, the background, you know, what happened. And the, to me, the ultimate example that you see on that, on your point about the questions is when you get that police report and there's three lines in it, and, and those three lines are really helpful to the prosecutor. And then you think, oh, it must have been a kind of a quick interview. There's only three sentences, <laughs> yeah, right? And you go out there and, and you interview the witnesses. How many times did you speak to the police? Three different times. How long? An hour, an hour and a half, two hours. And then you end up with one report that's three lines long. Okay, let's talk about all the things that you spoke about that that are. Here's the report. Would you? And usually the witnesses that I I talked about a lot of things. That's yes, I said those three things, but I said this, I said that, I said I didn't see your guy there. So that's always a big area. Is what what was discussed that's not in that that initial report? Big big yeah. factor. You know, you know the video is like the biggest thing I'm seeing right now too. Is just not getting to the video fast enough. Um, yeah. I got a federal murder case a couple of years ago where 
the defendant claimed to have an alibi. It was it was like a kidnapping that an alleged kidnapping that turned into a murder, and the defendant, you know, had claimed that this person went with them willingly. They were boyfriend girlfriend, and everything was fine. They were hanging out at this gas station, and so he had this alibi. And it was years after the case had started that we got involved. And I went out to this gas station, and as soon as I walked in, the ladies looked at me, and she goes, "Oh, you're here for the video, aren't you?" She thought I was an FBI agent. I was in a sport coat. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? She goes, oh, an FBI agent came out here like two years ago and looked at our video. And she had his card still on her desk in the drawer. And she pulled wow. it out. Sure enough, a case agent. And I was like, oh, well, did he get a copy of the video? And she's like, no, he watched the video and said it wasn't helpful for the case. And so he didn't collect it. And, you know, according to the defendant, that proved that he was there and his alibi and you know, you just, you can't go back in time and recreate these things. They're forever lost, you know? And so yeah. the video is huge. You know, I, I mean, you guys know, you know, seven, 14, 30 days is like kind of the max you're looking at for a lot of the video nowadays. Yeah, definitely. And again, that mindset that, again, this is a problem that some investigators think their only job is to document things that help their case. As, as that example you just gave that, that guy looked at the video, it didn't help his case. Didn't, didn't record anything about it, it sounds like. Yeah, we, we, we trade in facts, and my attorneys and I talk all the time about good facts and bad facts, and my attorneys want to know both because they need to address both. Um, and I, I do think it's, I think it's unfortunate that, that some um, law enforcement and some DA investigators and, and you know, um, other investigators look for stuff that's just going to help carry the narrative that they're they're looking to um but that's that's the world we live in and the the takeaway is you know pull another quote from your article steve the time to attack the government's case is prior to being charged um you know it's kind of like voting do it early and do it often (laughs) yeah you know and this sounds terrible to say too but my general feeling is that prosecutors are more willing to not charge or dismiss early versus if they're very invested in their years into the case. You know, it's it's easier to have the off the record conversation before anything happens than after it happens. So, you know, it's, yeah, it, like everything, it, it comes down to a strategy, I guess, and you know, everyone's got different opinions. Sure. Let me ask you this, um, Steve. I know you spend a lot of time um, in in kind of litigation support meetings with other people that provide litigation support services how would you suggest the rest of us as investigators um educate our clients the attorneys to get in sooner than later kind of what i see with a lot of the attorneys is they don't really understand how to use us correctly they don't know some of the capabilities we have they're worried about costs I think it's kind of just talking with your criminal defense clients about pre-charge cases, about some of the things that can be done, the reasons why they should be done early and helping them too to understand the cost. Cause I think some of the, some of the conversation on their end with their clients has to be covering the cost of these, these cases and kind of we Some of, sometimes like I'll hear certain experts joke that the experts will actually make more money on pre-charge cases than the attorneys will. And that's usually because a large part of the pre-charge case is investigating. So the attorneys are waiting on information. And I feel like maybe sometimes the attorneys don't want to be bothered with pre-charge cases because 
they're not making a lot of money on them. They're paying out more in expenses than they're they're taking in themselves. And yeah, quite frankly, you know, they're they're having to ask their clients for quite a bit of money to get a pre-charge case going in. Maybe they would rather their clients save that money to hire the attorney once they're indicted. You know, it's there's a money thing, obviously, there. But um, yeah. yeah, and I, th- I think I think the attorneys and, and, you know, John, you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think the attorneys also may be thinking about it in terms of, um, you know, this fiduciary responsibility. I've got to get the best result for my client. I also need to take care of their funds as much as possible um, and spend them in the right way. And there is a gamble to doing stuff pre-indictment. Um, you know, if it, if it goes poorly, it could be argued that you spent all that money up front and now you're still indicted and you still got all the legal fees and all that business. But I would argue that you're already ahead of the ball at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you, there's a chance it could go poorly, but there's a chance it could go extremely poorly at the trial. And, and usually those would be linked. You know, if, if you go, yeah. if you, pre-charge investigation is bad, then it's probably a rough case. So, um, but I, I think you guys make a great point that I, I do think it is a funding issue for some attorneys where their their expenses are gonna be real real high on the front end with experts and investigators. Um, I, I remember this conversation with the attorney on this particular healthcare fraud case because he was very clear with the client, which I appreciate. And Hal, I know you have a client who has a great kind of catchphrase and he said, my fees are going to be high for the trial. His fees, meaning me, are going to be high right now. Like right now, next three weeks, he's going to be all over this thing. Yeah. But just, and his fees are separate. And yeah. it was well established in the beginning, the very first meeting, and it was not a problem. So. Yeah. Well, Steve, any uh, any parting wisdom? Investigate early, investigate often. I guess. I mean, it's it's definitely a lengthy process, you know, especially. I mean, I don't know about, you know, the areas where a lot of the listeners are living, but, you know, we see cases get indicted, you know, that were investigated four or five years ago. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible, the backlog. I mean, it's, it's insane. So it's, you know, if, if you have what you think is a good case and you really have opportunities to pursue it, I mean, you really should think about pursuing it early. If nothing else, at least the things that are going to, you know, I have this, article I wrote a while back ago called evidence expires and it talks about things like video witness memories, but yeah, at least with video, I mean, it, it's not that expensive to send an investigator out to try to document video or at least send letters of preservation to these companies asking them to preserve the video. I mean, that's, yeah, it, you know, you can structure, I think in a way where you don't have to blow someone's entire savings account. Um, but yeah, I think for like for the PIs listening, you know, it's have these conversations with your criminal defense attorneys, help them to understand how to use you, what the opportunities are, and you know maybe how to team up on these things because it can be you know lucrative for both parties. Yeah, awesome, Steve. Thank you so much Absolutely. for taking the time to be with us today. Um, we both really appreciate it. Uh, John, any parting words? Steve, that was that was great insights and. Um, I just really enjoyed talking with this with both of you. I know we've covered this uh, before, sort of in person over the years. It's just great to bounce ideas off uh, off experts like you, like both of you. So enjoy enjoyed this very much. Awesome. All right, well, um, guys, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this. 
that is the sound of pursuit for John Nardizi, my co-host, and Steve Mason. I hope you guys have a great rest of the day. <laughs>